0: It's Friday, December 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The House Judiciary Committee was debating articles of impeachment before it is sent over to the full House for a vote next week, where President Trump is expected to become the third president in U.S. history to be impeached. Democrats are bracing for some defections from moderates, but still expect to pass it. Julie Grace Brufke house reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Next, GEDmatch, the genealogy website that helped crack the Golden State Killer case, has been sold to a forensic genetics firm that wants to make tools for DNA analysis and allow access to their database. The deal shows how this still-developing field is drawing interest from those looking to profit. Peter Aldis, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for more on Verigen, the new owner of GEDmatch. Finally, Property owners once saw short-term rental sites like Airbnb as threats, but now they are embracing the business model. Startups are leasing blocks of furnished apartments under long-term rentals and then renting those out to travelers for stays of a few weeks to as short as one night. Conrad Putsier, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how apartment landlords are becoming the new hoteliers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If you vote for impeachment, because my district is red, a good chunk of it,
1: and they're definitely anti-impeachment. And then I have part that is purple and they are more pro-impeachment. So whatever you do, you are going to aggravate people.
0: Joining us now is Julie Grace Brufke, House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julie Grace. Well, thank you so much for having me. The Judiciary Committee is going over the articles of impeachment. There have been a few fights. We're all awaiting really the full House vote next week to see if President Donald Trump will be impeached. Everybody kind of is expecting that to happen. But uh, the Republicans have been using their time to offer a ton of amendments. And the way that this committee hearing is going is like anybody can offer up an amendment and then everybody gets to weigh in. So it's kind of a big, long procedure. I think it was Jim Jordan of Ohio offered an amendment to just flat out eliminate the abuse of power article. Julie Grace, give us some of the highlights of what's been going on.
2: A lot of the minority members that I talked to were pretty upset they didn't get a minority hearing, which they feel kind of conflicted with the rules that were set forth on impeachment initially there. So I think it's kind of particularly fiery because of that. I think the most heated moment was probably when Hank Johnson brought up Matt Gates's DUI after he was going after Hunter Biden. So that seemed to be kind of the most combative moment that I witnessed.
0: Explain that a little bit more, because I know they he brought up Hunter Biden's past drug abuse and whatnot. And then uh, he didn't na- call him out by name, but he did say something. Well, I wouldn't be talking if, you know, somebody else had a DUI and things like that. Explain what happened there.
2: Matt Gaetz had offered an amendment, I believe it was uh, to change some of the language to replace Joe Biden's name in uh, the investigation. Some of uh, the Trump administration was allegedly pushing for to say that it was focused on charisma and Hunter Biden. So Matt Gates was highly critical of Hunter Biden, kind of, some of the controversies that have been there. And then uh, Congressman Johnson kind of shot back at him. And as you said, did not name him by name, but it's like this is the pot calling the kettle black. So definitely was tense.
0: All of this. I mean, really, it's just a lot of jockeying back and forth about procedure. Really, nothing is changing. And all eyes turn to next week and the expected vote from the full House. We're expecting it to pass and for Donald Trump to be impeached. But the House Democrats are expecting some defections among the moderates on their side. What do we know about that?
2: Sounds like there's probably going to be roughly half a dozen members that could buck party lines there and vote against it. Now, from the members I've talked to, they're expected to kind of be the moderate Democrats that one district's during the midterms, that Trump had won in 2016. So they're kind of in a difficult position there that a large part of their constituents are still pro Trump. So um, I think for those are kind of the members to uh, look out for next week on the floor.
0: But by all accounts, I mean, they can have those defections there and it would still overwhelmingly pass with all the Democrats uh, yes, obviously I, voting for it.
2: I don't think Nancy Pelosi is particularly worried about the whip count at all there. I think so far. Uh, Jeff Randrew seems to be the only member I've heard that's really come out and definitively said he plans to vote against them. Republicans are not expecting anyone to buck the party there. Kevin McCarthy said today he didn't even think they really needed to be whipping it on their side. Now, they did hold a formal uh, whip count during votes on Thursday, and uh, it seems like they're going to be able to kind of keep everybody in line on that side.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the historical significance of this. Next week, the full House will vote, and President Trump will likely be the third president in history to be impeached. But then we're going to go off to the Senate trial, and by all accounts there, it's GOP-led. Everybody thinks he's just going to be acquitted there. What is the sense of the public, maybe? like Since we already kind of know where the pieces seem to be falling, are people even interested in this whole thing?
2: I definitely think that if going to be a historic moment. Now, when it gets over to the Senate side, I think it's already kind of essentially almost dead over there. Mitch McConnell has said that he's considering bringing up a, uh, trying to acquit the president, and they're kind of angling for this entire process to be short over in the upper chamber. Republicans this whole time have really kind of been railing against the process over on the House side and taking an issue with kind of how quickly everything kind of is done. So you can expect over once, is expected to pass on the House floor. I mean, unless something really crazy comes out, the vast majority of Republican senators are going to support Trump.
0: Are Democrats overall nervous in the conversations that you've been having, how this will all play out, considering that fact that once it gets to the Senate, by all accounts, the president will be acquitted there?
2: I don't know if I'd call them nervous. I'd say on the House side, from House Democrats I've talked to, a lot of those moderate members are kind of worried about how their vote's going to play in 2020 whether they're really going to be hammered by Republicans on that there would be a ton of money on ads, and that sort of thing going into trying to flip those house seats back. So I think that's kind of the main concern from the Democrats I've talked to. I've talked to a number of moderate Democrat members that kind of uh, really have been weighing their options on that front. Now, I've also talked to a lot of Republicans on that front that said they're already planning to kind of hammer those members because they voted for the resolution kind of approving the procedure for the entire probe. So whether or not their vote will impact them come 2020 or whether the public will even kind of have this on their radar at that point also kind of
0: remains to be seen. Julie Grace Brufke, house reporter at the Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
3: And that was really when a lot of pressure came on these two uh, enthusiasts who run GEDmatch to sort of address these concerns. And what they did was say, okay, everybody has to explicitly opt in to be included in these searches for their DNA profiles by police.
0: Joining us now is Peter Aldis, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us, Peter.
3: Glad, glad to be here.
0: This past year, we heard a lot about genetic genealogy. It really all started last year when the alleged Golden State killer was captured. We still have to go through that whole trial and all. And we found out that investigators used this genetic genealogy, and they, they worked with a DNA company, GEDmatch, to identify some relatives. And then they narrowed it down, and they finally got the person who they suspect did all those murders. This whole thing has been just kind of advancing and advancing. And we're getting into this moment where... People are starting to make money off of it now. There's this company in San Diego. They provide high-tech sequencing of crime scene DNA to law enforcement. They just bought out this company in question, GEDmatch. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of the big implications of what this means now for genetic genealogy.
3: GEDmatch, as you said, was key to that arrest. It's a site that was founded originally by a couple of genealogy enthusiasts where people can upload their DNA test results from other companies and look for relatives because they have overlapping DNA. And then people who are into family history, they can build trees and see where these people fit in. And it's really the same technique that the FBI and various law enforcement agencies in California working with a genealogist called Barbara Ray Venter did for the Golden State Killer case. Now, since then, it kind of exploded. There was another company called Parabon that hired a leading genetic genealogist, somebody called C.C. Moore. And they started doing similar stuff because they had a lot of crime scene DNA samples already from their previous forensics work, that firm. And before long, they were solving cases, identifying killers and rapists in these cold cases at the rate of about one a week. But then we had some issues that caused a bit of a privacy backlash. So first thing that happened was yet another company called Family Tree DNA started working with the FBI on these cases but didn't initially tell its customers. Now, one of my colleagues at BuzzFeed News revealed that back in January, that caused quite a bit of disquiet from those who'd never given their permission for that. And then at that point, there was sort of, I guess, some changes to terms and conditions of various websites. By that time, both GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA were saying, among other things, well, cops can do this. And People who use these websites know now that they're doing it, but they can only do it, they said, for homicides and for sexual assaults. Now, the second thing that happened that got Jeb Match in some hot water is basically there was some police in Utah investigating an assault. It was a nasty, violent assault, but it wasn't a homicide and it wasn't a sexual assault. And the cops convinced Jedmatch to bend the rules in that case, and then Parabon went and was able to identify a suspect.
0: I think in that case, they tried to present the case that it was a matter of of urgency, that they needed to track this person down because they could do it again.
3: Indeed, that was the case. But I think the problem was, you know, if you're going to have terms and conditions, then the users of GEDmatch, or at least some of them, felt strongly that they should be stuck to. And that was really when a lot of pressure came on these two uh, enthusiasts who run GEDmatch to sort of address these concerns. And what they did was say, okay, everybody has to explicitly opt in to be included in these searches for their DNA profiles by police. And that really put the brakes on, essentially, because suddenly a database that you could search from 1.2 million DNA profiles until people started opting back in again, and it has been quite slow, it essentially like became useless yeah. to the police.
0: So tell us about the new company that bought them up and then kind of the concerns that comes from this. It really continues to be the story Um, of privacy and and law enforcement being able to search people's DNA.
3: After all of this, those two enthusiasts, I suspect they just wanted to get out of the heat that they were feeling. (laughs) and made plans to sell it. There was talk that it might be sold to a DNA testing genealogy company, but in the end, and I think it was quite surprising to people, it was sold to this forensic genetics company. Now, there are some concerns about this. Some people have been saying they're gonna withdraw their data from JEDMatch. However, it should be said against that, I've spoken to the CEO of Verogen, a guy called Brett Williams, and he is making some pretty powerful noises about privacy. He told me explicitly when I spoke to him on Monday, he said, we are not going to force people to opt in. He said, if I try that, I know I'll undermine everything. So what he's saying there is, this is a useful resource to the police because it's a useful resource to anybody who wants to research their family trees. And if this new company runs it in a way that makes those enthusiasts nervous, they're going to withdraw from the database and it won't be of any use to the police.
0: Peter Aldis, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you.
1: we're starting to see now is that change completely. And in part, because of these professional operators that are becoming more common, you're seeing more and more landlords decide, hey, there's a lot of demand for short-term rentals. Uh, A lot of people like renting apartments as opposed to renting hotel rooms. Why don't we try to make some money and partner with some of these operators?
0: Joining us now is Conrad Putzier, real estate reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Conrad. Thanks for having me. For a while, property owners, apartment complexes, new developments were seeing short-term rental listings like Airbnb as a threat. But now a lot of them are starting to embrace them. This specifically happened actually with my wife. She had to go on business and work in Boston actually for about two and a half months. And she did this. She actually rented out a whole apartment in this big apartment building rather than doing like something smaller in Airbnb or you know somebody's house things like that so tell us a little bit about how this is changing and how apartment landlords are starting to get into this game
1: we're all familiar with Airbnb right people renting out their guest house or a spare room by this website And that was the business model for a long time. What you're seeing now increasingly is companies that lease entire apartment buildings or lease floors of apartment buildings and turn all these apartments into furnished short-term rentals. So basically hotel rooms that look like apartments, and then you can book them. And often you can book them via Airbnb or you can book them via different listing sites. So this business model has really expanded. And one of the things that happened sort of in conjunction with that that was really interesting is that the real estate industry has completely changed its attitude to this whole short-term rental model. So, as you pointed out, initially a lot of property owners, a lot of apartment landlords saw Airbnb as the enemy. Or maybe enemy is too harsh a word, but they saw it as a problem. You have all these tenants in your building, and if some of them decide to sublet their units via Airbnb, you as the landlord face all these risks, like maybe your tenants violate local laws because Airbnb is illegal in your city, and then maybe you as the landlord are liable and there's all sorts of related risks to that. And on a more basic level, tenants are making money with your apartments and you as the landlord aren't making money. And right. I think just on like a basic emotional level, a lot of landlords just didn't like that. So for a long time, property owners just were anti Airbnb and, and helped lobby against the listing site in different cities. What we're starting to see now is that change completely. And in part because of these professional operators that are becoming more common, you're seeing more and more landlords decide, hey, there's a lot of demand for short-term rentals. Uh, A lot of people like renting apartments as opposed to renting hotel rooms. Why don't we try to make some money and partner with some of these operators?
0: And even in a lot of other situations, like I said, maybe it's a brand new development and you really just haven't gotten all of your long-term tenants in there. This is a great way to make money in the meantime and bring it up to capacity and with the short-term rentals, because the demand for it is out there.
1: Say you build an apartment skyscraper in New York or Miami or wherever, and it has whatever, 200 apartments, 500 apartments. It takes a long time, even in the best of markets for all these apartments to be rented out to tenants during that time when most of your apartments are empty you as a property owner lose money, right? Because you have your mortgage costs, you have to pay all your staff and you're not getting a lot of income from tenants. What some of these short-term rental companies basically say is, hey, instead of just leasing out your apartments one by one to people who then rent it for a year and maybe a year later they move out again and then you have to find someone else, we're just gonna lease the whole building and we're gonna lease it for 10 years, maybe even for 15 years and you don't have to worry about anything. So that's a pretty attractive proposition for landlords and what's also interesting is that because there's so much competition among these startups that are managing these short-term rental units, there's often real bidding wars for these buildings. So that would be a company like Sonder, a company like Domio, a company like Lyric, all funded pretty well by venture capital, chase these buildings and bid for them. And what that means in practice is that property owners can often rent them out to one of these companies for more money than they would have gotten if they just rented them out one by one to... Normal tenants.
0: How are they handling local regulations? Because I know there was increasingly a number of bills and laws that were passed determining pretty strict limitations on short term rentals. I know a lot of these were geared towards Airbnb specifically, but how does it work in this area?
1: All these companies say that they comply with all local laws, and to my knowledge, that's broadly true. There's a lot of cities where, where these short-term rentals are legal In those cities is not an issue. There are other cities like New York and San Francisco where it's illegal to rent out your apartment for less than 30 days. So you can't just have an apartment building and turn it into a hotel. The exception, though, is if these buildings are zoned for commercial use and if they're up to commercial building codes. They're built in a certain way, like the width of the staircase, what kind of sprinkler and what kind of alarm system you have that is in line with commercial building codes. So what companies like Sondra do in cities like New York is, you know, they stay away from traditional apartment buildings because turning them into hotels is illegal, but they find these buildings that are apartment buildings but are zoned for commercial use build to commercial building code, and then they can turn those into hotel rooms and it's legal.
0: Conrad Putzier, real estate reporter at the wall street journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.